Welcome to the fifth episode in the Goodwill Hunters winter series on water for development. I'm your host, Rosie Ween, Chief Executive of WaterAid Australia. And in this series, I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Michael Wilson, CEO of the Australian Water Partnership. Thanks, Rosie. In this episode, we're talking to two highly experienced authorities on water policy and innovation in water practice. Karen Millward is a proud Yorta Yorta woman, raised in Melbourne, who is a director of Yarra Valley Water and provides organisations and their people with program design, cultural awareness, organisational development and leadership advice, services and training. Tony Slatcher headed the Water Division of the Australian Government's Department of Agriculture and Water Resources until 2017 and has more recently served as Special Advisor on Water for the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Tony is a founding member of the International Water Policy Group, a facility for governments and international bodies to access water sector experts who have themselves been senior decision makers and trusted advisors. We know that you're really going to enjoy this episode. Tony and Karen don't shy away from the challenges we face with the water crisis, but they're also clear-eyed on where we can build and maintain momentum to solve the crisis. They're also really passionate about innovation, which Tony describes as doing things differently. And Karen shares practical examples from her experience as a Yorta Yorta woman of how to have key decision makers and diverse voices around the table when making decisions, important decisions around water management. We can't wait to hear your feedback on this episode. Water scarcity and water security challenges are growing at an unprecedented pace, affecting billions of people globally. The United Nations has said that in over 300 locations, we can expect to see conflict over water by 2025. This is exacerbated by continuing population growth and the impacts of climate change. So what happens if we do nothing? My name is Rachel Mason Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters. This series is brought to you with support from the Australian Water Partnership. As a Water for Development initiative supported by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, the Australian Water Partnership mobilises Australia's internationally recognised expertise to drive action towards sustainable water management in our region and beyond. We're so glad you can join us for this crucial conversation on our shared global water future this winter on Goodwill Hunters. Greetings to all our listeners. I'm joining from the lands of the Kulin Nations and Michael from Ngunnawal country. We extend our respect to their elders past, present and emerging and thank them for their care of country and waters. We extend that respect to all our First Nations listeners. And Karen and Tony, welcome to the podcast. Karen, given we're recording this during NAIDOC week and celebrating all that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture and knowledge has given this nation. Could you first talk about why acknowledging traditional custodianship of our land and waters is so important, not just to good decision-making around our precious natural resources, but also around reconciliation? Sure. Um, well, hi, everyone. Uh, first, I'd like to say Golpa Gaka Ananya, Gaka Yawal Nalawa Yambina, 
Yoda Yoda Waka. So that means uh, welcome to everyone. And um, in my Yoda Yoda language, uh, I think um, acknowledging uh, the traditional owners and custodians of country is uh, paying respects to who the first peoples are. And you're actually saying that you know that um, mm. when you do it. Um, it also is a form of uh, making us feel welcome as Aboriginal um, community members uh, when we're actually doing work with you. So when we're coming in and you're acknowledging who we are, we feel more comfortable about engaging in conversation with you um, about important things like looking after the waterways. Thank you. So, Karen, the work you've done in your career has spanned a whole lot of issues and subjects, children and youth, family violence, economic development, Aboriginal cultural awareness, natural resource management, and you're also a director on the board of Yarra Valley Water, which is a leading innovative Australian water utility. So can you tell us how, how water fits into your life and your career? Oh, wow. Uh, that's a big one. Um, it's uh, fitted in my life, I suppose all my life, but more prominently in the last probably five years, uh, where um, Yarra Valley Water asked me to um, work with them on their first reconciliation action plan, which was an innovate wrap. And from there, we identified actions uh, that Yarra Valley Water could actually do more of. And, um, and I felt that I really wanted to be more a part of that. Um, uh, and I, I find that, you know, although water is very important to uh, everybody because uh, it's about survival as well. Um, it's uh, also um, uh, very important for cultural ceremony. And I've learned about that over this period of time, uh, just about cultural flows, um, ensuring that, you know, the water is always flowing in the right way, uh, that we're actually protecting um, all the animal, fish, bird life um, that surrounds those waterways. Uh, but we're also making sure that um, uh, we're, protecting our cultural practices uh, around water. And that's what I've learned about. And that's how it's become a big part uh, of my life where I think it's very, very important that we're able to uh, protect um, uh, our traditional ways uh, and that some of our traditional practices can still be um, taught to non-Aboriginal people who are also managing the waterways, which are our water corporations and uh, other stakeholders. So I think uh, it's played a big part in my life. Um, and I've also been able to, you know, educate other people in my own community about why it's so important to be involved. And particularly at the director level, I think, um, you can actually influence and um, make some um, real change, which is uh, really good. Amazing, Karen. I might come back to that um, uh, cultural value of water in a moment. But first, Tony, uh, you're a lead water policy thinker in Australia. And in your career, of course, you've lived and worked in Fiji uh, and worked in water policy, not just in Australia, but globally. Can you also share a little bit more about what's driven you to commit yourself to this important work on water? Uh well, yes, so early, I was born on Ngunnawal country and privileged to be born on Ngunnawal country and I still live a few kilometres from where I was born and um, also uh, celebrate NODOC week with our, my Indigenous uh, friends and colleagues. Um, uh, and Ngunnawal country is a very dry and unforgiving environment uh, and the people here historically have had to manage scarcity of water as a fundamental feature of their lifestyles for uh, much longer than uh, Europe, European history can uh, can record. Uh, and uh, 
Uh, so I, I think those of us born in uh, in dry and unpredictably unpredictable uh, environments like this, uh, whatever our origins, um, mm. uh, you know, live and breathe uh, an interest in water. And you could probably ask the question about what part has water played in your life to every everyone, in, at least in Ngunnawal country and um, possibly in Australia. Um, uh, look, early in my career, uh, I, I was working in Solomon Islands. Uh, this is about, I don't want to reveal my whole age, but about 40 years ago <laughs> uh, as a young, um, young person uh, trying to make a start in life. And, uh, and uh, uh, in that environment, I, took, I, I became deeply interested in the whole question of development, um, the principles of development, what now, what uh, what is what what is what is good development? What what is mm -hmm. um, uh, you know what what can societies gain and lose uh, from development? And then um, uh, and I had uh, it, in that environment then, which was pretty pretty um, basic. <laughs> mm. um, these issues were you confront these issues square on. You can't be there for five minutes without absorbing these. So from that, later on, as a senior public servant, I was running uh, some research functions in the department that was handling regional development policy in Australia. Uh, and uh, uh, I was running a research bureau called the Bureau of Transport and Regional Economics at the time, even though I'm not an economist, I'm, I might add. Uh, mm -hmm. But um, uh, the uh, I, I took an interest in, in, in uh, for a range of reasons, which we won't go into, in in different patterns of development and why that why different parts of Australia developed in different ways. And uh, one of those experiences was flying down the Murray River in a small plane and observing the diff totally different uh, development on each side of the river, where the soils are the same, the climate's the same, the water source is the same. Hmm. And so I said, well, why is this so? And we did a big research study on that question. And it all came down to the way water policy worked in the two states hmm. and how well, largely came down to that, but um, also to do with soldier settlement schemes and things like this, but, but largely to do with the different way that water allocation policy was figured out in the two states. Hmm. So that was a real eye-opener to me and caused me to, take, to then jump into the water domain of policy. Because it seemed to me, and everywhere I looked around the world, you could see the same story, that water was the single most fundamental factor affecting patterns of development and how societies developed. So I took a deep interest in the issue from there and went on to um, spend a large part of my working life um, focused on those questions. Wow. And we're really looking forward to, to talking more about water policy and some of your perspectives, uh, Tony. Karen, one of the key themes that really has come through in this series is the value of water, the value for health, for economies, for gender equality, for agriculture. And you touched on this before in your introduction around the cultural value of water and what you've been learning about, particularly over the last five years. So, as an Aboriginal woman, what, how do you experience and describe the value of water from that perspective? Well, I guess, you know, for thousands of years, Aboriginal people have been uh, caring for country um, and they want to make sure that the land and the waterways are healthy. 
mm. uh, and that they're protected. So they can actually provide um, a rich source of resources to ensure Aboriginal communities' survival within many societies. So that's how I sort of, you know, first uh, look at it. Then I look at it, you know, well, what does water provide? It provides, you know, food, um, uh, material for making tools, uh, cleaning, you know, um, your implements, uh, cleaning yourselves. Um, and there are water um, uh, cleansing ceremonies as well for when uh, people pass away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and this is, you know, done differently uh, across the country. And so water, you know, can play a, a different part, not just um, for drinking or for um, uh, fishing. And uh, mm-hmm. what I find is that um, uh, water also provides medicinal purposes uh, for Aboriginal people. And uh, mixing that with, you know, other plant life um, is uh, uh, being part of, you know, Aboriginal people's uh, lives for a very, very long time. Um, and something, you know, that uh, I've learned with that, with the use of water, um, is, you know, boiling water and putting particular plants in it actually can help um, uh, address, you know, many ailments that you might have. So one example is um, that Aboriginal women where uh, my people come from in Yorta Yorta country would use lemon myrtle and they'd boil that up and that would take the edge off the pain of childbirth. Oh. So, um, and they'd use wow. it in the uh, birthing trees, which are right on the river, which is the Murray River and for me known as the Dungala River. So there's lots of stories around that and there's cultural values around protecting those big river red gums um, and the stories that go with that. So I think that um, more people need to have that understanding about why it's significant to actually continue to protect um, the environment and particularly our waterways um, because there's um, so many stories uh, that actually be told uh, from that. So, you know, I'm just sharing uh, a couple of little things, but there are some, you know, bigger things. Uh, I know that down at um, uh, Lake Conda in the Western districts of uh, Victoria, um, Aboriginal women, you know, were trying to catch eels and they were struggling because it was, you know, taking too much time in the day. So they sat down and they problem solved. So when they were pro- problem solving, they were knitting the uh, grass reeds together and then they were making these long, you know, plaited ropes as they were talking about how are we going to do this and then worked out mm. that we put this together, we make fish traps um, and eel traps and we put them in along the lake and we put bait in and the eels come in, ah. they cut, uh, reverse out. And then at the end of the day, they all come down, pick them up, take them back to camp, bash them over, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. the head and there's dinner and in the morning they repeat. So um, I just think it's amazing uh, just the technology that Aboriginal people used um, and this is all around water you know, mm-hmm. as well, um, and, uh, and it basically sustains our society. So I just think it's very, very important that um, people understand uh, these cultural values and they need to be considered in the future planning uh, mm-hmm. of any project and real engagement needs to happen with um, traditional owner groups to actually realise that. And I think the point you make, Karen, is that, you know, a lot of these solutions are really practical ones uh, that would be really useful for all Australians living with and around water to, to know about. And, and I think that knowledge um, isn't, uh, isn't fully extended across the Australian community. So that's fascinating. Um, Tony, you have um, quite an unusual combination of um, domestic policy experience around water, international experience, and an engagement in the international development issues around 
sustainable water resource management and SDG 6. So in your work supporting the UN and World Bank High Level Panel on Water a few years ago and subsequent international dialogues uh, that you're engaged in leading up to the 2023 UN Water Decade Conference, how can the value of water be communicated to leaders and decision makers who are often not water people in a way that captures their hearts and minds and persuades them to commit their own political capital to furthering the cause of sustainable water management? Yes, well, that's a, <laughs> that's a very deep and important question, uh, Michael. Uh, uh, we gave a lot of thought to this in the high-level panel on water process and um, uh, developed principles for valuing water which uh, encompass uh, both the issues, issues of the type Karen was describing, um, uh, as well as the broader set of values that different societies um, comprehend and, 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 and gain from, uh, from the existence of water, uh, the use of water, and, and I suppose the consumption of water as well. And uh, uh, that turned out to be a really, a really uh, deep and difficult exercise just to figure out what these terms really meant, particularly when mm. you're working in a whole lot of different languages and um, a word like value, you know, is yeah. a typical English language word that can have so many different meanings to different people. Um, uh, whereas um, in translation, it can come through very differently. Um, uh, but nevertheless, we soldiered on. And uh, I mean, our, uh, our conclusion was basically that uh, political leaders needed to be more uh, attentive and respectful of the range of different types of values that exist in their, their societies um, uh, and embody them into, into thinking about what to do with national water resources or local water resources. Um, uh, now, that's very easy to say. Well, it wasn't easy to say, actually. It took us a long time to figure out just what to say, but, it, but, but, it, but it's very difficult to do in practice, um, mm. partly because in a society there are a vast number of values that exist in the society, particularly a multicultural society like Australia, for example, or, um, or societies that have a lot of in, internal diversity. So, so, you know, what really matters and what, people really care about will, will, will vary according to where they live and their, their, um, their, their ancestry and all, all kinds of things that um, are all valid values that society has to, uh, has to acknowledge. Um, uh, now, pleasingly, um, this issue was seen as so important uh, by, the, by the, if you like, the... Um, the institutional leaders of water globally uh, in the United Nations and places like that, that they dedicated a whole year of um, analysis and uh, work to the preparation of the World Water Development Report on valuing water <laughs> uh, that was issued on World Water Day in uh, March, March this year. Uh, so that's, if you have, any listeners are interested in this incredibly important topic, there's no better place to start if you want to get a global overview of just how this issue is being thought about than 
that World Water Development Report on valuing water. Just Google WWDR valuing water and it's there. Um, uh, so, and that, that, as I reflected on that report and the work on the high-level panel, it, it seemed to me that, you know, it, it comes down to the listening skills of the political class uh, and the um, openness of, of um, decision makers to uh, accepting the validity of a whole lot of value sets that would not normally be considered in government processes. Uh, and uh, that, that's the key message uh, of both the high-level panel on water and, and of the um, World Water Development Report. Uh, which which does spend a lot of time trying to explain to the global audience that valuing water doesn't mean just putting dollars and cents against mm. um, against <laughs> uh, water outcomes. Uh, it's a much more fundamental concept uh, than that. So we know that the world's off track to achieve universal access to water, sanitation and hygiene by 2030. And um, the World Water Development Report from this year that Tony's mentioned does contain some pretty scary statistics. Uh, so we need to see a step change to meet the targets in the SDGs. Um, and clearly one key to that will be innovation around the conservation, recycling, reuse and generation of fresh water. So Karen, can I ask you first, what do you think uh, of when you think of innovation in water practice? Uh, what comes to mind for you? Um, I guess um, at Yarra Valley Water, um, uh, we've had some innovative uh, people put together the new uh, digital metering system uh, where you'll be able to actually really uh, measure, you know, your water use, um, uh, tell when there's um, uh, a leaky tap, um, you know, anything going wrong with mm. your you know, system. And I think that's very innovative in the way that um, we can actually save water. Uh, we can actually, you know, fix things quickly uh, when we were able to actually, you know, read all that information, whereas before it was really just about use. It wasn't really telling us uh, anything else. So, you know, we're trying to actually roll that out as much as possible. So we've done all the testing uh, with it. And I'm like, this is amazing that just internally people come up with this. We're not subcontracting it out to other experts, it's, you know, your own employees actually yeah. up and problem solving. And um, so I get really excited about that when um, I hear about these types of things that um, uh, our staff are actually working on. So for me, that's really exciting. Um, and then it's putting out, you know, um, uh, like the, the water wallies, you know, the little um, uh, uh, creatures that um, have been uh, developed by Yarra Valley Water where they're testing that in schools. So then you're um, convincing children to convince mum and dad and yeah. all the other adults in the household to, um, you know, look at water consumption. And I noticed that with recycling years ago, you know, when I was a kid, constant, constantly telling mum and dad to, you know, we've got to recycle, you can't put that in that bin. And, um, and uh, you know, we've got to have a compost and all these other things. Uh, and, uh, and that's, you know, changing a lot now with water uh, use. Um, so I find that those things uh, together, you know, can work. There's, you know, lots of politics around desalination plants and, you know, um, uh, and where to put them and whether they're above ground or below ground. And um, I find that's a real challenge. Um, so more work really needs to be done with the broader community, but also our political community around um, what the benefits are to um, making these significant changes. Because I keep thinking in my head, um, every time I have a meeting, 
important um, uh, about, you know, our water uh, is that um, uh, there's no new water. So the water we have is the water we have. So, and um, our population is growing. So mm-hmm. how do we actually get more water to, um, a, you know, a growing population? That's, you know, really challenging. Yeah, but I know we can do it. I know we can do it. We've got some amazing people. Yeah, and I love your pride, as you say, of people getting around an issue and can hear that in your voice as you talk about that problem solving. Um, so, Tony, for you, uh, if we think of your experience and globally, what are some of the best examples of innovation in water management that we could learn from here in Australia? Um, and perhaps any examples that you've seen where of us really sharing effectively innovations in Australia uh, to particularly developing countries where we need to accelerate progress? Well, um, uh, look, look, uh, it clearly um, we won't, you know, we won't, the world won't get to SDG 6 by 2030 without an enormous amount of innovation. Um, but I regard innovate, the innovation word, it really means doing things differently <laughs> and doing things in ways yeah. we haven't thought of before. Yeah. Uh, so let's get down to tin tacks. And it, it's, that is a much more important uh, uh, way of thinking about innovation than the gadgets and widgets and technologies that might be invented. Um, and uh, quite compatible with your with what Karen was describing is going on in um, Yarra Valley Water. Um, uh, so um, that means it comes down to policy and, and um, practice uh, at, the, uh, at all levels uh, and people being willing to think outside the box about what, what could work and what could be done differently. So I, I think the current um, underperformance on SDG 6 is basically can be characterised as, as, a, as a great big policy failure <laughs> you know, yeah. of, of the most fundamental type. Uh, and can only be corrected with radical rethinking of how things are done. Um, many countries have been doing that, including Australia, um, in, in different ways, uh, and we have led in some ways. Um, but you know, but um, uh, at the at the end of the day, I think I think the the types of innovations that will make the most difference are around the way institutions are, are set up and mandated and operate at the type of engagements and consultations that institutions are permitted, permitted to undertake and ideas they're permitted to take on board, uh, mm. the, um, the way that pricing and um, incentives are, 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 are organised by regulating bodies, things like this. It all sounds very boring, but this is, this is actually the beating heart of getting results absolutely <laughs> it really is uh, and and um uh, so techno you know regulatory innovation how do you deliver on the human rights to water and sanitation uh in in ways that are affordable for a society uh and are, are acceptable to in a dem- dem- in a democratic society are acceptable to the majority how do you do that? This is really, really, this requires a lot of very innovative thinking about how services are, um, are, are, are regulated, uh, for example. Uh, uh, and I could go on and on, but but around the world, uh, there is there are there is so much experience, uh, not just at sort of at the government level, but among um, pretty amazing 
entities. In many countries of the world, you know, the, the, the real leadership isn't at the government level. It's at, run by community organisations and, um, uh, and think tanks and all sorts of non-government entities that are actually coming up with the, the ideas that are then picked up by government because they don't have the capacity inside government yeah. to work it all out themselves. So um, I, I won't begin to list them, but, I, I, but you know, just yesterday I was, I was made aware of new forms of financing infrastructure that are being invented in Peru, for example, and um, uh, quite... They look pretty innovative to me, you know, harnessing a range of different ways of um, incentivizing investment in basic uh, infrastructure in a country like that, which is struggling on so many fronts. So uh, th these are the sorts of things that uh, we all need to learn from each other uh, and um, we need to be very open-minded, very open-minded, much more open-minded than we have been about what, what is possible. Absolutely. And, and when you were speaking about those innovations, they did not sound boring at all. And it really reminded me of some of the key messages we heard from Navara Kine in Papua New Guinea, talking about the importance of system strengthening uh, to achieve SDG 6. So thank you, um, Tony. And, and, and Karen, one of the key areas, I love what you said, that in your head, you're thinking there is no new water. Uh, we do know with climate change, it is really going to be experienced as water change. What are some of the innovations that you're seeing uh, that can really help us around linking the climate crisis with the water crisis? Now, that's a big question. <laughs> um, uh Look, I think uh, anything's possible, but you've got to actually bring um, your constituents yeah. um, on board on the journey. And so it's not just, you know, the water corporations themselves. You've got to bring um, the customers along. And uh, and I think, you know, we, we try our best to do that. But if you are not working in it and you're not embedded, embedded in it every day, then it's sort of hard yeah. to um, comprehend because you're not seeing it yet. So it's something that could be happening in the future even though we don't want to scare people that you know there's going to be no water in you know 20 years time uh the drought's going to get worse and you know so where does all that uh, water come from so we have to look at innovation um but that also comes at a cost and it comes at a cost you know sometimes if you're a utility company that um uh the customer uh, needs to have a say in that. So something I know that um, Yarra Valley did when I was when I first came onto the board was the citizens um, jury. Uh, so we're actually consulting with um, um, cohorts across your community, uh, customers and business um, about well, would you pay for this or not, and mm -hmm. how much would that look like? And as Tony says, you know we're in a regulated you know world when we're talking about water, so you've got to make you know things okay for the minister um for the you know government department that works you know in this in this space which is you know dealt for us um uh here and uh um and you have to meet um uh, the other water corporations um pricing as well so we have you know this 
these debates going on all the time about, you know, what is what is reasonable and then how do you bring people on? So then you have to talk to local councils because they're doing all their planning um, and, um, and if, you know, they're given permits to actually build more facilities, then that needs more water and plumbing and mm. all that sewerage, you know, all that needs to be considered. Uh, so it, it's very challenging, I think. Um, I think we do well, but I think we could do better, but it's also about uh, resourcing um, and bringing everybody on board. So, you know, it's, yeah, uh, we have to work collaboratively together to um, actually achieve that. And that's going to take a long time. Karen, one of the most interesting things you've said, I think, just uh, in the last few minutes is about whether you can actually contract out innovative thinking, that I think you were saying innovation seems to happen most naturally and seems to be best incentivized when you're within an organisation trying to solve the problems and you're actually responsible for solving those problems. We've always said, of course, that uh, if innovation was uh, obvious, it wouldn't be innovation. It would just be obvious. So um, trying to incentivise innovation, um, you know, is that, Tony, from your perspective, uh, a bit of a blind alley? Is is it likely we'll get more results by actually freeing up decision makers who are at the coalface of problem solving to explore new and different avenues? Yes, I, I think I think so. Um, for the reasons I was saying before, um, I mean, it doesn't hurt to endeavour to incentivise innovation, but um, the best innovation is probably going to emerge um, organically, uh, when you p give people the right permissions and authorities to mm. stretch their minds, um, uh, uh, any any kind of incentive system will tend to be driven by somebody else's preconceived idea of what the innovation outcome might be like. <laughs> they'll be trying to to give that idea a boost. Um, that's um, not really to, to you know the scale of challenge we have, which we haven't really talked about today. Um, but um, everybody can see the numbers: the billions and billions of people in the world that do not have access to adequate water and sanitation that we take totally for granted in this country, except in the most remote communities. And um, the, the, the challenge, and it is so important to get this right, we absolutely have to harness all our know-how as a species, as people, to, uh, to solve the problem. Absolutely. Um, Tony, and as you, know, you mentioned before that SDG 6 being a policy failure, um, and we are six years into the SDG 6 agenda with 2030 coming close, uh, and you just outlined the, the scale of the challenge, what do you think is required, particularly in the next couple of years, to get that lift uh, that we really need to see to, to achieve our, our vision of universal access to water, sanitation and hygiene by 2030? I think the, the, what's required uh, is, is uh, resolve uh, at the national level. Um, what's not required is, in my opinion, uh, be controversial, but what's not required is a whole lot of aid money thrown at it and 
this sort of stuff. Mm. Uh, it's it's um, it's resolve. It's political resolve pro- yeah. that 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 people in positions of authority understand and are um, are committed uh, to changing the way they think about the importance of water. Mm. Uh, uh, They have to understand that water, you know, we don't care about water just because water is a good thing. We care about water because without it, you can't have health, you can't have education, you can't have cultural enjoyment, you can't have uh, economic development, you can't have a good environment, you can't have um, any of the things you actually want in your society. So there's not much point putting a whole lot of effort into those things that you really want if you haven't got your water water um, settings right. And that is the failure that is most pronounced at the level in my observation around the world at the national government level. Yep. And that is where in my opinion, political energy needs to be uh, uh, directed. Yeah. Well said. So, Karen, as we think either at the global level or at the local level or at the national level about good water policy and practice, who happens to be around the table making decisions and whose perspectives are listened to matters a great deal. And we know that more diversity means better decision-making. So, Karen, what in your view is working well and what do we need to do differently in in ensuring that that women are around those tables, that First Nations people are around those tables, as well as other marginalised people, such as people facing disability, for instance? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I've seen a massive change since I came onto Yarra Valley Waters Board. So... um, uh, we're really, you know, shifting um, the makeup of our representation and looking at skill sets in a different way as well. So, you know, looking at, well, how can other people actually contribute? Um, I'm glad that we have a majority uh, Aboriginal, um, uh, 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 two Aboriginal people on the Arrow Valley Water Board. So mm-hmm. I'm on there with Ian Hank. So he joined uh, last year. So there's two of us. So we can both come in at this end to, you know, sort of uh, influence where we can. Uh, and we certainly have been able to do that, which has been awesome. So I've seen a huge shift uh, in um, uh, the culture change around um, uh, Aboriginal issues and how um, the organisation works with traditional owner groups, um, particularly around uh, the waterways, uh, but also when you're doing cultural heritage management works, we're making sure that um, it's done properly in the right way. Um, And there's always reports to the board on how the Reconciliation Action Plan is being implemented. Um, for the first time ever, we've got like lots of stories included in the corporate plan and, um, you know, annual report. Um, we now have images of Aboriginal people, you know, so, um, you know, in these reports as well, because our community wants to see that. So I've seen a huge shift that way. Um, first time ever, we've got the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags or the flagpole at the Mitcham office. Mm. Um, so that's, you know, pretty awesome. We've got Aboriginal artwork. We had uh, members of the Torch Project uh, that's in Victoria, so Aboriginal people uh, that are in prison doing artwork. Um, We had uh, a couple of um, uh, Aboriginal men come out and paint a mural uh, in the outside area of uh, the office. So we're, you know, gradually doing uh, all these things. And then there's relationships with uh, other Aboriginal organisations as well. So it's not just about the traditional owners 
But I've seen, I think uh, there are now um, uh, 15 Aboriginal people uh, on waterboards, and that includes the CMAs uh, as well. So in four years, that's, you know, shifted from two people to, you know, 15. Um, interviews have been recently done, so I don't know if there's going to be, um, you know, more people uh, appointed in October. Uh, so that'll be really good to see um, that happen. Um, and uh, and I think something that uh, has happened for women uh, is that in the water sector is that uh, there is a women's leadership program to actually look at succession planning uh, for women within the water sector, but also across the boards. Mm. Um, I think more could be done though, because uh, when I really like delve into it and see who's on all these boards, I'm like, oh, some people have been on there for ages, you know, it's time to, you know, get some fresh blood in there. Uh, and, uh, and I think um, uh, people have a lot to contribute from um, a diverse um, sector and then you're being more inclusive of what you're talking about in your policies because um, there's all these policies around inclusion um, but sometimes it doesn't change at the top so we need to do that. And when it's actually demonstrated that having those uh, more diverse voices at the table compared to what used to happen... Uh, actually leads to richer, more inclusive, more holistic solutions, then the argument starts to run itself, doesn't it, really? So I guess the other thing I wanted to ask you, when it, when it comes to traditional knowledge and custodianship of land and waters, consultation is clearly not the same as consent in decision-making. So are we getting this right yet in Australia? I mean, you've indicated that perhaps we're, we're now travelling along the path, but are we getting it right? And can our experiences be useful learning experience for other water custodians internationally? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, I uh, um, got to go to Canada, to Vancouver, uh, two years ago before uh, COVID and uh, uh, myself and uh, another um, Aboriginal person that works at Mel, um, sorry, at um, Yarra Valley Water, um, we went and met with uh, Metro um, Vancouver, and uh, I couldn't believe the water, you know, that was being just used up. And I'm like, oh my god! I said, uh, I'm in shock. I'm just in shock. And uh, they said, what do you mean you're in shock? And I'm like, I'm in shock that you're using water to clean the streets. I'm just like, what? What's that about? And I took photos and you know all that because I was just like wow you know and um they're like yeah we do that all the time and I'm like oh there's not a water issue over here Karen I'm like okay well in the future there might be so um you know you have to think about this and then when we were talking about what we were doing it was like really and desalination plants really and it was you know just this whole questioning yeah. of what we were doing and I just thought wow but what they were doing in the um uh uh I guess um, with the First Nations people uh, was pretty incredible, I have to say. So um, I see that we're way behind uh, in how that's actually working um, over there. So, but there, there are treaties in place. So therefore, you know, um, entities and corporations need to actually meet um, certain legislation uh, requirements. Um, and over here, uh, we have to, and in Victoria, we have to meet uh, cultural heritage management uh, legislation. Uh, so if an area is going to be dug up, or needs to be dug up to put a pipe in or change, you know, something, then you have to have that assessment done, making sure that you're not disturbing um, a site of significance uh, or artefacts that need to be, you know, 
reburied um, mm. and then um, monitored. So uh, I think it's that is changing, but we've still got a long way to go. And when I think about what Rio Tinto did to the Duke and Caves, you know, yeah. um, a, a big mistake, and you know, it costs the board and um, and not realizing the you know the bottom line. Um, so people, you know, tend to think that they can get away with things, but they can't anymore. And uh, people are watching and people are, you know, um, are wanting, you know, action taken uh, when things like that uh, actually happen. And what I did like about the shareholders of Rio Tinto um, was actually taking them to task on that, yeah. um, sitting back and, you know, just hoping it's all going to go away. Um, so there were consequences. And, um, and Reconciliation Australia is really strong on this, that when you have a very high-level reconciliation action plan, then you have to be accountable, you know, to it. Absolutely. And they will hold you accountable um, and, um, and basically, you know, flick you off the list um, and then, you know, complain and put it in public. So um, we're not sitting back anymore. Um, about these things. Um, I think uh, more engagement is actually happening in the water sector with our traditional owners and custodian groups, which is fantastic. Um, and those relationships have improved with staff, uh, with board, um, uh, which is really important. So I encourage my board, you know, you need to do uh, cultural immersion. So they've done cultural awareness training. Uh, now um, it's about, you know, walking out on country with um, mm -hmm traditional owners so you could actually really feel it and picture it and hear it uh, rather than sitting in a boardroom um, looking at a PowerPoint. So, you know, you really need to uh, be out there and doing that. So I think it's changed um, uh, quite considerably in the water area because we just focused on land management uh, at the time. And so now we're actually looking at um, the waterways. And what I do like about uh, with um, the Wurundjeri Wurrung uh, is that, you know, working with Melbourne Water um, on the, you know, either side of the bank of the um, Birrung Ma, which is the Yarra River, um, that's set in concrete, that's in legislation, that that joint management needs to occur. So um, uh, I think it's great. And I think we're very progressive in Victoria, but we're still a long way to go. And it's great, it's great to hear the excitement that's in your voice when you talk about these, these things and, and uh, examples of us moving forward. Thanks, Karen. Thank you. Indeed. So, Tony, as we are drawing this conversation to a close, as you think about water policy and innovation around water and water management, what's what gives you, um, well, what worries you most and what gives you most hope? Human nature is the answer to both questions. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> uh, uh, look, um, uh, look, what worries me most is that um, the international community won't be able to rally to the type of action that I was describing earlier I think is necessary. Uh, they mm. have a big opportunity to do so in 2023, which is the first full all-in conference involving all members of all countries um, for 47 years. It's 47 years since that sort of thing has occurred. Um, so it's pretty significant and it's a great opportunity to, um, for, to, to generate political um, um, uh, momentum uh, yeah. in, uh, in those countries, I should say, that have the most to do to achieve SDG 6. Many countries are, are, are there, but the problem is many aren't. 
Uh, and we're yeah. and we are all in this together, just like with COVID, um, and just like with climate. You know, if 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 um, if there are countries that are not don't make it, then we have all we've all got a problem. Um, Absolutely. Uh, now, uh, so what worries me most is that that momentum might not be realised uh, in the next couple of years. Um, but I'm, I'm, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot going on to make sure that momentum is realised, <laughs> and I'm, I'm very, um, uh, very uh, positive about the potential. Um, Mm. Uh, we don't have any other option. It's the only it's the only um, opportunity we have um, to really shake things up, uh, and um, uh, I, I hope that the world can come together and do that. Um, there are very positive signs. For example, um, uh, all the uh, almost all countries signed on to a very progressive resolution about water uh, a few months ago. Mm. Including the major, the big guys, you know, China and the US and Russia and all these, India, all these countries that are usually at loggerheads over all kinds of things, all came together on this statement. Um, and these are the, this is a positive sign. Uh, and um, uh, uh, I'm also positive that um, that water is going to become a central issue at uh, COP26 and the climate negotiations as the world realises that the climate change that's already occurring is going to be essentially the problems it creates uh, are, through, uh, are through water. Um, mm. uh, and um, uh, also as the world realises that the water, the water sector itself can make a considerable contribution to mitigating emissions, um, not through um, things we normally think about, but for things we don't normally think about, like how are wetlands managed, how is sewerage managed, how are rice paddies managed, <laughs> things like this, um, that um, uh, if managed better, if the water can be managed better in these domains could really make a dent on global emissions uh, mm. of methane in particular. Uh, so, so I'm very optimistic that, um, that it, this, this is possible um, and um, uh, we just all need to um, be out there advocating for big, big things. Uh, and um, um, and if, I, if I can just mention that the Water Policy Group, which I'm, I'm a, um, a member of, is presently surveying all, all ministers of the world about what they're seeing as the political impediments to water mm. reform. Uh, and we will present the results of that, uh, which has never been done before, this sort of analysis, uh, never been done before. Everybody... You know, worries about oh, it's all just political problems, political problems. But what do you know? What does that really mean in different in different societies? And um, uh, and um, we that, that will be our contribution to helping to shake things up is the release of the results of that exercise. Um, but so there's a lot going on, and um, I'm um, uh, on balance optimistic that the, that the better parts of human nature will prevail, and uh, we will. Um, uh, we will be able to give the necessary um, uh, support to those countries which have so much still to do to achieve SDG 6. Thanks, Tony. And um, Karen, to you, you've talked about some of the inroads and the innovations and the progress that has been made around more 
inclusive water resource management, more informed water resource management, and more creative water resource management. So where to next? What, what gives you hope? And, and I put to you the same question Rosie put to Tony. What worries you most uh, about the next decades in this endeavour? Oh, look, everything worries me now that, you know, COVID sort of happened. Um, uh, I think we've become real worry warts in a lot of ways. But um, I think for me, uh, living in the eastern metro region of Melbourne, um, having that 100k winds um, storm that happened um, about a month ago and ripping out 100-year-old trees or even older, um, and it's like, well, what do you do with that? You know, you know how do you actually address that? And then that affects water too, because you've got, you know, bushfires and all the ash that can go into the water system. So that worries me that we're going to have more of that. Um, it worries me that um, we won't have uh, the resources to cope with all that change all at once. So, you know, I've watched it. I've watched teams of people, you know, helping each other from other water corps to just deal with what was happening in the east, which is amazing. Um, mm. But what if this happens on a regular basis? Um, you know, our system just won't cope with that. Um, and that's what I worry about. Um, and that's with, you know, the whole thing to do with climate change. And, uh, and that, um, you know, people are out without electricity. Um, they can't, you know, feed their families. Um, and then you, um, and then the worst thing is you're providing bottled water because, you know, um, uh, you can't get the um, uh, the real water up there because you know you've got all these trees blocking everything. So um, and that to me is like kind of like the iron irony of it all. Um, and and people look at that going, why are you giving me this? You know, sort of thing. Um, and uh, so that so I'm challenged with that. Um, and I'm also challenged with uh, you know if we uh, the the land does get drier. Um, uh, you know, will we actually survive, you know, in, in the future? Um, and, you know, we'll have, you know, water limitations and that can actually drive um, the community nuts uh, as well. And that, you know, means that we have to deal with the mental health around um, that. But I'm hoping that innovation can overcome uh, some of these things and we have some brilliant minds uh, out there. I'm, I'm like... Uh, I get really proud about uh, the workers at Yarra Valley because they're so intelligent. You know, there's so many smart people in there um, and they um, automatically say, this is not a problem. We're going to address it. And, um, and we addressed it around safety. You know, we've really improved safety um, of workers being out there in the field. Um, you know, that's really changed in the last five years. So I think um, people will take on anything to actually um, achieve the right goals. So we need to make sure that we can, continue to provide healthy, you know, uh, clean water uh, and, um, and of course, uh, clean sanitation uh, services as well. And I, I think we can get there, but we do have to bring everyone on board to do that. What a perfect note for us to be ending on. Thank you so much, Tony, and thank you, Karen. Our next episode will be the finale of this season. Michael and I will be in conversation with Melita Grant and Duncan Green. Melita is a senior research fellow at the Institute of Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. And Duncan is an author. He's also a professor in practice in international development at the London School of Economics and Political Science and senior strategic advisor for Oxfam Great Britain. 
we'll be reflecting together on the themes and way forward that have emerged from this Goodwill Hunters winter series on water for development.